Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Right now, though, it's time for us to have an art attack. Art attack, 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 attack. For the last year, our visual art segment, Art Attack, has been juggled, shall we say, uh, around COVID safety, which means that the interviews have been on the phone with Ty Snaith and Ace Wagstaff on alternate weeks because trying to get people on the phone together is a bit of a challenge unless you want to book a conference call. Uh, And it means I've missed seeing their faces. And this week, for the first time since March last year, Ty Snaith joins me in the studio. It's so lovely to have you back. I'm really here. I'm not a hologram. It's It's great. It's such a beautiful thing. (laughs) It's been a hell of a weird year. Uh, It has. It has been a hell of a weird year. But thank goodness we've got art to all turn to when we are um, feeling sort of lost and fearful and don't know what to do with our hands, Richard. Yeah. We've had something to do. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things that you did during uh, last year in 2020's weirdness was joined me regularly and it was your idea to talk about kind of creative uh, art practices that were both educational and fun for kids. Uh, I wanted to ask before we start to review the, the work that you're going to talk about today, you're an artist as well as a parent and so many other things. How did the pandemic impact on your own artistic practice? Did, it, did you struggle to, to find creativity amidst the gloom and the stress and the lockdown and the homeschooling? I know there are people that did struggle, Richard, so I don't want to be that asshole that didn't. But um, I actually found it – I was extremely productive because I was home more. And I have my studio at home, which I was extremely thankful for, really, really grateful to have my working space at home because I know a lot of artists were separated from their studios. But, no, I made a whole body of work, like pretty much a whole show during lockdown. And um, I think for me, it depends on how you work, but, like, for me, being productive or being creative is a way to process um, what's going on in my life. So for me, during covid it, it was a scary time for everyone, but for me, part of that work that I made was processing those those feelings. So I think if you, it depends on how you work. Like I know for some people it was really difficult because it, it separated them from their working space or their materials or whatever or their community. Um, but for me, because I always work at home, it was really just like, oh, well, this is how I process it. Luckily, I could get access to, you know, buy more materials. But, yeah, no, I made heaps of work. And also I'm lucky to have two kids that are generally pretty easy to work with maybe because they've had to deal with that their whole life but they were pretty good at homeschooling and you know no issues there so I could work amongst teaching and being you know like just being at home lucky to have space and yeah so I've got a whole a whole body of work grew out of it for me fantastic yeah Yeah. because I was thinking for artists whose studios were more than 5k's from home Mm. for example Mm. during lockdown one and two that must have been enormously difficult and really stressful like a lot of people working on on their you know amongst with their partner working from home too and their kids schooling from home and if you've got a small place it's it's quite stressful like so yeah well certainly uh, in my flat 
I was working out of my bedroom, which mm. is not ideal at all. So no, I know. I just um, I actually just wrote an essay for Craft Victoria for the show that's on there at the moment, and all the graduates that came out of it's called Fresh that show, and um, all the graduates that came out of last year. It's really interesting the type of work, and I wrote about this because all of them were working from their bedrooms, and people working with clay that couldn't fire their clay. So they've shown these green greenwares that aren't even fired. So everything's got this sort of fragility, and you know, one woman that did pressings from her ceiling cornices and I think it's really been interesting how people's practices have adapted and morphed to to reflect that vulnerability which I really I'm really interested in that but it's not like we stop no one you never stop and even if you actually stop making a lot of people did a lot of research or they put down ideas or people artists started writing which I think is really interesting I went back to creative writing which yeah. is something I my art journalism has been my main focus for in terms of any kind of creative expression for many years and before that mm. it was grant writing and and mm. uh, creating artistic programs at express media so for 20 years i've i've i'd stopped doing creative writing yeah. last year for the first time went in, back yeah i went back to it and, and so that's great i mean i think that's one of the silver linings is it, for me that the same thing happened where you stop a bit because we're such busy people often the busyness eats up quite a lot of time and headspace and headspace and organization all that stuff so so if you do get the chance to stop a bit, you've got to make the most of it. So, yeah, I think that inward reflection and turning in for a lot of people helped. But I also understand that it was inhibitive and it created blocks for a lot of people too. And, and fear can be pretty um, debilitating for in lots of ways. I just tend to push through it with work, you know. So I just drank heavily, <laughs> like half the population. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now, uh, instead of turning inwards, let's turn outwards. Yeah, uh, I got gal- out. Galleries are open again. They Exhibitions are. are on. Yeah. Things of it, it really feels like oh, it's almost like last year never happened. We've just jumped from March to March, well, and suddenly things are on again. What have you been to see? I've been out to Tarawara, but I do feel like there's this this feeling as well of like, quick, go and see the things before it shuts again. So it's not just that they're open again, it's this urgency to cram them in. Like, let's go see some live music before it goes again, you know. So I went out with a couple of friends, which is always a nice thing to do um, for Tarawara. So carpool, because it is a car trip, it's pretty difficult to get to via public transport. Um, So we drove out to Tarawara during the week and to see this bloody brilliant show I have to say called Looking Glass which is a show curated by Hetty Perkins um, and it's two Indigenous artists, women artists, Judy Watson who's a Wanyi artist and Yawani Skars who is a Kokatha and Nukunu artist and they are both very um, interesting practitioners because they both have a, you know, obviously visual practice but are also quite political in their intention. So I found this show, Richard, I have to say, I was kind of prepared for what it would be like but I was blown away by how um, breathtakingly beautiful this show was but also how they could combine that absolute beauty of country and the natural landscape with searing political intent which I think is um, one of the most amazing things that visual art can do is to convince people through beauty uh, of really important issues that we need to be thinking about so I don't think anything else in the world can really do it like anything else in life can can combine you know maybe music I guess or it's art as well but but the way that visual art can suck you in 
and make you look at these cra- these beautifully crafted objects and think, oh, wow, that is such a lovely thing. You know, like I'm attracted to that, ooh, sparkly, ooh, beautiful thing. And then you read about it or you think further and you're like, oh, this is really intense. You know, this and, – and I think also this show made me really think about the weight of objects in our history as well, particularly um, in our colonial history, the weight of – objects uh, in collections and what that means. So let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in Indigenous um, culture, objects like nets or strings or, um, you know, like uh, objects that have been around for thousands of years that were practical but also incredibly handcrafted and beautiful, a lot of them were pillaged and taken by, say, you know, European settlers and put into um, museums in other places in the world. And this is something that at the moment is, you know, a hot issue. They need to come back, basically. But the way that art, I guess, can comment on those objects and that significance is, is quite poignant. And this show really talks about that. So... Judy Watson's paintings are these huge um, unstretched, which I think is an important point because it's very rare to see a big show of big unstretched works. Um, and they're... To clarify, <clears throat> what do we mean by unstretched? Oh. Um, so when you do a painting, a lot of people paint it on a loose canvas and then afterwards will stretch it over a frame and often put it into a glass frame or another frame. So that's the very traditional way of hanging paintings is to stretch it so it's taut and then hang it on a hook, whereas these works are all loose, unstretched, so they have raw edges and they're pinned, but they're not little, they're huge. Um, And it's a whole massive space of these beautiful, big, unstretched canvases. Um, There's something really gentle and powerful about that as well. I'm just thinking, as you said that, I was like, these are canvases in their natural state. They Mm. haven't been contained, controlled, pinned down, kind of stretched into some kind of different form. That in itself could be a commentary about... uh, uh, about country, about identity, about yeah. accepting things as they are rather than trying to force change on them. Yeah, and it's also practical. Like as an artist, it's really hard to transport stretched canvases. You know, you have to have a big truck. Or, whereas unstretched, you can roll them up and fold them. And I just feel like this is a really feminine aspect to that as well that's about practicality and life and also you know you can imagine these these works being made on the floor or moved around or and there's something about that that I really appreciate this the confidence to sort of show unstretched works is really awesome so they're sort of they're interesting images that are very much as soon as you walk into the space they're very much about place so landscape and these paintings by Judy Watson um, are using lots of pigments and sometimes ochre charcoal quite natural um but also polymer uh, paint. So there's a paint and natural element um, combination there. But the imagery are sort of these big, often they have these big uh, shapes behind, so like a kind of silhouette of a stone, for example, and then in the foreground a silhouette of, say, a kangaroo grass or um, a a twine or some some kind of object uh, that is made. So the stones are from the British... uh, sites of significance, ancient stones. So I think they call them standing stones. So, for example, Stonehenge or Avebury uh, and these other very ancient civilizations, but in a British tradition. And then the, the objects in the foreground are more like a grevillea or a kangaroo grass, which are also ancient um, pieces of, of the history here. So for Judy Watson there, her two backgrounds coming together. But what that does is by putting those ancient British sites in in with the um can, the aboriginal sites or or objects is that it, it it makes us think about the two things as the same so we there are ancient 
people everywhere. And I think that with Indigenous uh, iconography, say like grasses or um, nat- things from the natural environment, we often just think of them as landscape or we think of them as plants. But they have so much significant they were, significance. You know, they were materials, they were food sources. So pairing those two things together, everyone looks at Stonehenge and thinks, oh, you know, amazing ancient civilization. But I guess that's just really drawing us into thinking about Indigenous people now as having this super ancient civilization that is absolutely incredible and the lightness of touch on country and all of that kind of stuff these works speak of. Well, the fact that Stonehenge was built only 5,000 years ago and we have at least 75,000 years of continual history in this country. Yeah, Yeah. so they're quite gentle works and some of them even, the more you read into it, the more political they get. So there's one that I loved that almost has this shiburi technique in the background where the, like, you know, tie-dye shiburi technique and then over the front of the image is just these two circles in white which made me think of moons but when I read about it they're actually to reflect the British um, the military regiment buttons that were left at scenes of of massacre and suppression of Aboriginal people so it's also got that flip side where I was like ooh moons and then when I read about it I thought ooh ooh, you know, nasty buttons, you know. So there's these the, – the language of objects in this show is really strong. And then also in the show is artist Ioani Scars. And so a big – well, half of the show is also hers. And so together their two practices come together. And Ioani's practice is with mainly photography and blown glass, so hand-blown glass. And, I mean, most people would have seen the amazing um, thing <laughs> – I've got a word – missing my words here – at the NGV that was in the – the site or the pavilion that was built out the back there with um, Edition Office, the architects that Yuani, I think they won lots of awards for. But Yuani's quite known for making these glass yams. So they're a very iconic shape. They're like a little yam shape or a teardrop shape. And this is a reoccurring motif in Yuani's practice, obviously reflecting the the Miranong or the yam you know yam daisy that is found in was essential to Indigenous culture, but also representative of sometimes a person or a soul or an embryo or, um, you know, like an individual unit, basically. So I, I really love the way that Ioani's practice has developed this language that can be, <clears throat> you know, you can basically put meaning onto those yams. And there's this incredible work in the show where she has hung all the little glass yams in the space to make sort of the shape of a mushroom cloud or a um, nuclear cloud. So Yuani is from uh, her birthplace is near Woomera or in Woomera, and obviously the history of Woomera is you know the Maralinga um, bomb site, which is still something that we, I mean, we know about. But as we learn more about it, it was an absolutely horrific thing that happened there and is still ongoing. And the amount of people that were affected by that is insane. So each of these little yams in the mushroom cloud reflect every person that was touched by that. Um, disaster, both both white and Indigenous people. Um, so I found that work incredibly powerful, just to see it in the site. And they're all hanging in space, almost like droplets. Or So the beauty of this work, like I was saying before with Judy Watson's works, is the beauty is it's, it's awe-inspiring. Like you just get your camera out and you want to take a photo of it or you want to stand next to it. But then when you read about it, it's horrific. It's, so that combination of both of their practices where they can look at something of absolute beauty or make something of beauty and then actually pack a punch with it as well. And then the other works by Yuani are bigger glass. They're, they're like, what are they called? Bush plums. So they're to reflect the shape of a plum or an, um, a native, you know, fruit. But they are installed 
in these kind of medical trolley things. So they're very clinical steel trolleys and each of them has a series of plums on them of different sizes. And so you walk into it thinking, oh, this is nice, you know, some glass plums. And then you realise that the photo behind is a, a grave site or a cemetery and then you start to think oh and the, the oh the the graves are quite small you know so as you so what happens with us when we look at art Richard is that we put these pieces together and we're drawn in by some for some reason and then as you put the pieces together you go oh they're babies graves oh this is like these babies were some of them not even born yet so these are all the children that were affected by the bomb and it's just laid out in this visual language that is so powerful some of them are tiny so they were in utero some of them were bigger just born but all of these babies didn't live because of um you know what happened there so that bomb site was incredibly it was a that was a massacre you know and I think these these works have this powerful still quietness and subtlety that just it is it's a really affecting show. The exhibition is called Looking Glass it's on at the Tarawara Museum of Art and it closes soon it closes on the 8th of March. Yeah but you have I actually think it goes past the long weekend I was told so is that after the I think it yeah, is that right? I think it finishes on Monday, which is the public holiday. Okay, so, so yeah. you've got the weekend to go. So yeah. if you're thinking about um, driving, I don't know, somewhere for your long weekend, why don't you drive to the Yarra Valley? And there's a really nice winery there if you're into that kind of stuff. And there's um, also excellent food down the road in Hillsville. If yeah, you the pub's kind of really good. If you want to move around. So uh, Tarawara Museum of Art, located at 313 Hillsville Yarra Glen Road, just outside of Hillsville on Wurundjeri Country. More info at www.t wma.com.au if you want to go and check it out if you've not been before the drive out is lovely the the setting is beautiful the design of the gallery itself oh, it's is amazing. wonderful and it sounds like this is a fantastic this is exhibition. a cracker show this is one of the best shows i think i've ever seen at tarawara and i've been to quite a few but i i really love um in the press release they talk about how this show reminds us how the pursuit of the great australian dream is not what it seems it is in reality a nightmare a shimmering mirage a candle in the coming storm and so I really love that that reflects you know what I was talking about before the power of this quiet beauty but underneath there's this sort of deadly dark history of of this land and I think the more we talk about that and the more that artists can portray it like this the stronger we'll become as people. Ty, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's really good. I feel like I need to take a few big breaths now. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! That's right. Triple R. My next guest joins us on the line to talk about the exhibition Flesh After 50, which is on at the Abbotsford Convent from this Sunday, the 7th of March, through to Sunday, the 11th of April. Now, I say exhibition, but really it feels like a festival unto itself. Jane Scott, it feels like a lot of work has gone into the programming for this event. Yes, and I can certainly vouch for that. It's <laughs> many years in the making. Um, of course, with COVID, that sort of slowed us down, but uh, it's uh, been a long time coming and it is vast Vast. It mm. is. I was looking through the, uh, the all the program last night because we're talking about, uh, I guess it, it's built around a core exhibition by mm. Ponch Hawks, but then growing out from that, we have other artists, other events, we have conversations, mm. we have film screenings. But at its heart, this is an exploration and a celebration of older women in art. Now, let's kind of Think for a moment about the art world as a 
a mirror or a microcosm of the world at large, which means it is also permeated and reflects some of the the wider societal issues, as much as artists like to think sometimes of themselves as being different to or better than or, or just in some way apart from the rest of the world. The art world is sexist, the art world can be misogynist, and it can certainly be ageist in the same way that the dominant images in our society tend to favour the young and the conventionally attractive. So this exhibition, Flesh After 50, it feels it shouldn't, unfortunately, but it does nonetheless still feel bold and important. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Richard. And as the spokesperson for the exhibition, that's an excellent um, rundown on what we're trying to do. Um, So all of that, um, and we still find ourselves in the position where women are underrepresented in public collections um, and the work of uh, people like Elvis Richardson, um, who has been doing statistical gathering. We still find that women's work is not featured on the front covers of art magazines or catalogues, um, even though there are more women who actually go through art school. Um, when you look at representation in um, in Uh, commercial galleries. It's predominantly uh, men still. We've got a long, long way to go um, in terms of equity in the way that female artists are actually represented by our industry. So that is one issue that we're trying to tackle. But more importantly, this um, exhibition was born out of um, the Royal Women's Hospital and one of the uh, heads of... uh, Martha Hickey was the initiator of the project and her specialty area in menopause. uh, She felt that we were just not breaking through. I mean, the hospital health message was not breaking through to older women about health issues of growing older. And she actually posed the initial question and started talking to me about would an art exhibition be able to address a health message? And that's where we kind of started um, this conversation about um, putting the exhibition together. So um, I approached um, 14 artists that we have commissioned to produce new work that looks at older women's bodies, um, how they have been represented and how they're currently represented. And, of course, the artists, as they always do, brought so much more to the table in terms of the issues and ideas around what this exhibition could be. But we now have over 24 artists in the exhibition. The Abbotsford Convent, we're in the laundry building, which is over 2,000 square metres of space. It's like, I keep telling people, it's the best, worst venue in Melbourne. It's so exciting to be in a kind of warehouse environment. It's been literally 30 years for me to be able to exhibit in a space like this. It is so raw but fantastic um, and a great space to show um, art. And uh, literally thousands of people have worked on this project over the last four years. Um, and you mentioned Ponch's project, Ponch, Ponch Hawks, her project. We really wanted to develop something that would outreach to people. So we invited women to come into Ponch's studio and we also set up 
studio spaces at the Shepparton Art Gallery and also the Geelong Art Gallery, and we invited women to come and model nude for Ponch to, uh, so as that they could be in this exhibition. So that is a massive wall. We have 423 women that were photographed as part of that particular project, and that was a great way of getting the message out and getting the conversation going about how people feel about their body, how they feel about the way that they're being represented, not only in the art community, but also just in society in general. And and that kind of grew into this huge kind of um, rollerball of ideas, um, which led on to then the festival program, which is a whole series of talks by artists, by medical professionals. Um, and I keep urging people to get online and have a look at the program. You know, it's everything you wanted to know about menopause, and it's not going to cost you anything. <laughs> if you're like me, and you're a woman who's in her 50s, and you're thinking, oh, menopause, yuck, and you, you start to kind of work out the medical kind of stuff. There's so many issues. Um, you know, we're running a free session uh, down here as part of that. We've got sessions on my body, my safety, um, my COVID. So we're doing a whole lot of, and my mind, we're doing all these wonderful free programs um, that talk about older women's health, and that's actually in the space. And then uh, we're also on Sunday, which is our first public program, we're doing a fantastic writers panel where we've invited some terrific um, writers including Melanie Chang and Donna Ward and also Catherine Devaney who are going to be talking about writing and what it is for older women in the literary scene. So that's being actually hosted by Amanda Smith from the ABC Radio National and they really tackle the whole sad spinster notion of older women in literature. And can um, I, just to jump in there for a moment, sorry. Jane, yep. uh, th that word sad, th well, that phrase sad spinster, kind of mm. to pick up on that, that's something that the exhibition is showing us that we don't just need to tackle societal issues around ageing and bodies. We need to tackle the, the very fundamental and foundational ideas. Because if we think about the language that's used, we talk about bodies mm. sagging as they get older. Mm. We talk about bodies mm. drooping. We don't talk mm. about bodies expanding or, mm. kind of, or changing. The language mm. itself that's used is often quite negative in its, con in mm. its, uh, in its very construction, which, which speaks mm. to a deep-rooted problem that we have around age and change. Now, I'm, mm. I'm 53. I have a body that isn't what it used to be clearly 20 or 30 years ago, but mm. we're taught to be somehow ashamed of that fact. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's so true. And we, as part of the project too, we interviewed um, 30 of the women who modelled for Ponch and asked them about how they felt about their body. And it was all of those sorts of issues came up about um, society um, the media is determined to make us feel bad about ageing, that, you know, the wrinkles, you know, is, is a sign and it has to be dealt with. You have to remove them instead of celebrating and saying, no, this shows that I have, I've been around, I've got wisdom, you know, and my body isn't what it was, but, I mean, my mind is as sharp as ever and, you know, and this body has taken me on this marvellous journey. I mean, it, it's, it's trying to sort of say to people, we should be celebrating ageing, not 
trying to avoid it. Um, and so discussions with those women and, and the quotes that we gained, the um, 435 women in the show, we actually asked them to, to give us some impressions about their body. And it's this wonderful kind of and, and far-reaching ideas about how fabulous it is to be older. And we really wanted to get that across in the exhibition too. And, it's you know, this show is not just for um, older women. We're hoping that it's going to appeal right across the board and also to younger people too to say, hey, growing old is not so bad. You know, it's, it's not the worst thing that's going to happen to you. And try and make it as uplifting um, as we possibly could. I mean, you know, so many people really come into their straps when they hit 50. Um, so, you know, we want that to be shared as well and we want that to be expressed through the arts. And it, I think it's also important to recognise that Flesh After 50, particularly some of the panels and the talks and the discussions, that this is uh, there's an intersectional approach so that uh, transgender mm. women are strongly represented in some of those discussions as well. Of course, of course. And we really tried to make it as accessible right across uh, all the different areas and have representation from everybody. You know, of course, we're not going to capture everybody, but we, we certainly gave it a red-hot go. <laughs> um, um, and uh, it's very important, obviously, today that we make sure that that diversity is there. Now, in terms of some of the other artists who are represented, for example, we've spoken about Ponch Hawkes' work, but uh, the likes of Deborah Kelly, the Hotham Street Ladies, so many more. Mm. Hotham Street Ladies mm. are also running a great little workshop uh, that I noticed in the program as well. Mm. But mm. A, a range of artistic practices, a range of lenses and ideas through which we can explore some of these issues around around ageing, the taboos around ageing and the ways we can break them down visually through art and also through conversation and through film. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, wonderful artists like Janina Green um, who, whose portraits are just sensational. Marie Clark is another one of the um, photographers in the exhibition. Sculptors, Sam Jinks, um, photographer... Um, Patrick Pound and also Greg Taylor. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I can say it on radio the title of his piece, uh, but people would be familiar with his work in Mona, and uh, he's got a wonderful series of pieces, small sculptures, and uh, Peter Wegner. So that was the other thing too that we had some men represented in the exhibition as well, because this the issues of female ageing is also really important to try and change and to grapple with men's attitude to it as well. It's not it's not just a female issue. And and that's been an interesting exercise to get those different perspectives too. Now in terms of some of the the film program, Flicks After Fifty, uh, Hip Hop Operation, for example, yeah. uh, from New Zealand, which is about a group of hip hop artists aged sixty five to ninety four. The Australian uh, documentary Morgana, which there's been wonderful buzz around, uh, co presented with the Melbourne women in Film Festival, and also uh, the Australian film The Songkeepers, looking at the Central Australian Aboriginal group, the uh, the Aboriginal Women's Choir. So a mm. range of film screenings. There's a dinner uh, complete with uh, with comedy, uh, and so much more. Now. To pick up on something you mentioned, Jane, as well, the fact that, yes, uh, the title of the exhibition, Flesh After 50, yes, it's clearly focused on um, uh, 
older women, their bodies and their experiences. But as you said, this is also an opportunity for young people to explore, to face some challenges and taboos and perhaps even fears around ageing. Yeah, and we really do hope that that's what occurs. We've got an education coordinator who's been working closely with schools and we have an education kit that's gone out to schools as well. Um, We're not allowing anybody under the age of 16 into the exhibition because there are explicit images. But um, Presumably if they're uh, accompanied by a parent or guardian, they can be admitted. Of course. Of course. Um, uh, But we're really targeting uh, VCE year students um, and obviously university age um, students as well. Uh, But uh, we have a number of tour groups that uh, are going to be coming through, um, which we're very excited about and keen to have them. And, you know, there's a whole plethora of health organisations that are also using um, the exhibition as an opportunity to really showcase um, the issues as well. So it's a very full program over the next week, six weeks. And I just wanted to let people know also that we're open seven days a week. And so, uh, you know, there's every opportunity to come on down and see the exhibition. Um, and we've also got a uh, paid bar. And this is one of the nice things that we can do outside of a traditional gallery space is that you can actually buy a glass of, uh, of champagne and, uh, we can't say, sparkling wine and uh, wander around the exhibition having a drink uh, if you wish to. Um, or you can purchase a cup of coffee and have a commissioned titty cupcakes um, as a bit of fun. Uh, so you can uh, pop around the exhibition having, you know, a nice little snack which you can't normally do in other gallery spaces. So that's a bit of fun. I'm all for it. Flesh <laughs> After 50 uh, is kicking off from this Sunday, the 7th of March, uh, just in time for International Women's Day on Monday uh, and running through until Sunday, the 11th of April. It's open Monday to Thursdays from 10am till 4pm, Fridays from 10am till 6pm and Saturdays and Sundays, 9am to 5pm at the Magdalen Laundries at the Abbotsford Convent 1 St Helier Street, Abbotsford. Uh, it's free uh, for the public programs. Uh, there are some tickets, uh, some ticketing issues that you will. You can't just rock up to the public programs. You need to keep an eye on numbers. It's COVID safe. So yep. jump online, www.fleshafter50, that's the word 50, not the numerals, fleshafter50.com.au for more information. Jane, congratulations on the program. It's so broad, it's so deep, and it really does seem like a, a thrill and, as I said, sadly, still important and groundbreaking uh, festival, exhibition, series of works, film screenings. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but it sounds great. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Earlier this week, the National Gallery of Victoria announced their 2021 program, part of which uh, was the announcement of the latest exhibition in the Melbourne Winter Masterpieces series, which kind of major exhibitions that have been running since 2004, covering a range of works and often looking at the more traditional blockbusters, kind of which tend to focus on artists or arts movements that are recognised Recognized and known, and that the public will respond to. The latest is French Impressionism. And joining us on the line is Dr. Miranda Wallace, Senior Curator at the NGV, to tell us more. Miranda, thanks for joining us. Oh, hi, Richard. It's great to be here. I'm going to start with the devil's advocate question. 
The Impressionists. Mm -hmm. Aren't we a little over them by now? Aren't they a little bit overexposed? Aren't there other artists and arts movements that are really perhaps deserving of greater attention? It's a good question. Uh, you know, the, the French Impressionists have certainly, um, you know, it's a well-ploughed field, you might say, in terms of exhibition material, but there is a very good reason for their um, eternal appeal. You know, as artists, they were really at the very beginning of the most radical transformation of art uh, that, you know, really went on to define the modern period in, in modern art. And their um, changes, the way they changed the way an artist looks at nature and the world around them and the way they reflected that on canvas shows such kind of, um, I think it represents such a great aspect of humanity in terms of the creativity that is possible in the face of, you know, um, opposition in terms of establishment that these artists were really fighting against. And they came up with these incredible images that do have an eternal appeal because they, I guess, they reach into a sort of universal humanity. Um, I mean, I think that the there are, there are kind of reasons why museums collected these, and I guess once they're in museums, it becomes, you know, part of that self-fulfilling prophecy of what is the canon for art. And it's certainly one that's worth questioning, and I think one that is not you wouldn't want to have exclusively exhibitions of French Impressionism. But I think, you know, in the spirit of not wanting to cancel some of the great achievements of the past, I think we, you know, recognise that this is a great period to explore and often a gateway for many people to enter art history and understand the progression of art. But also um, the great thing about this exhibition is that so many of these works from Boston are not familiar to our audiences. Um, they might have seen them in reproduction, but the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which really has a spectacular collection of Impressionist work, has not lent um, so many of these works to Australia before. So it's, it's a chance to see some of the work by perhaps artists who are familiar by name, but works that are fresh and new. So I think it's still a moment of discovery for our audiences. And one of the things that is fascinating for me about the, the French Impressionists is, yes, now they are, they are so firmly part of the art canon uh, but in their day, they were they were radical. They were sneered at by the establishment. The very phrase kind of uh, impressionist or impressionism, I understand, was originally used as uh, in a derogatory way to describe these kind of daubings that were appearing. And it's exactly also, yeah. I think, important to to remember that one of my understanding is that one of the things that allowed the impressionists to make the work they make was technological changes in the very pigments they were using as well, new colours, different forms of paint, which allowed them to to innovate with uh, the That's work right. they were making. Yeah, so one of the kind of key technical sort of advance, advancements was the ability to have paint that was ready mixed. Well, you didn't have to mix the oil and the pigment together in your studio. You could have it ready mixed and in a metal tube, and this enabled these artists to set off with their boxes of paints into uh, nature and with their canvases and often just paint directly in front of the subject. So they weren't restricted by, um, you know, having to kind of imagine what nature might look like from the confines of their studio. They were able to test their vision by looking at the subject and translating it onto canvas to experiment with paint colours. Perhaps a slightly um, exaggeration to say that the Impressionists never used black in their paintings, because certainly some of them do, but the lightening of the palette was to do with like the discovery of new paints, the, the fact that they didn't need to use bitumen, which was commonly used in painting um, in the early 19th century.
history and really had a, a, a unfortunately has a very bad consequence for paintings longevity that didn't the, the paint work the, the paint does not last well with bitumen in it but it also blackened the the image so much so you had much murkier darker images and one thing you'll see in the exhibition, you know, you'll see a room of paintings that are, it's in a section called Before Impressionism, but it's really about another group of pioneering artists who were really the ones who set off into the wilderness to paint. Um, they painted more conventional scenes, perhaps, and their canvases are sort of browner in, ten, in tone than many of the Impressionist sort of lighter canvases that come later. But the, that room really shows this moment of transition from a much more conventional idea of painting when... If you wanted to paint a landscape, uh, the kind of the academy almost dictated that the landscape you had to paint needed to be something perhaps from ancient Greece or you know classical Rome. It had to have a few figures in it of sort of nymphs or um, cavorting or goddesses. This kind of scene, it had to have a kind of mythological or indeed a historical context. It couldn't simply be straightforward scenes of nature as it would be seen now. That wasn't considered important enough a subject for art. So that's an, another huge change, is just the perception of what is appropriate to be seen in a painting. The paintings that are coming to Melbourne for this exhibition, uh, just even looking at the images uh, that were shared uh, in the media kit, for example, mm. the colours are so vivid and vibrant, and that's just in a PDF. Actually being yeah. able to see these paintings, the way they will pop off the walls. I remember the Van Gogh exhibition at the NGV several years ago, turning a corner to see a kind of a huge painting of the uh, asylum that that Van Gogh mm. had been in and reproductions just don't do them justice the the wow no. moment that you get from mm. seeing some of these works kind of in the flesh uh, even the, right. the the best reproductions in art books can't do them they can't capture them in the same way no that's right and i think one thing that you see when you're when you're able to stand in front of the canvas you get the uh, you see the actual marks of the brush and you begin to understand how the artist builds up the image with those sections of colour or form and also the spontaneity of the brushwork in Impressionist paintings is one of the, you know, the key trademarks, if you like, of this movement. And, you know, we must remember that the Impressionists in, in their own day were not a sort of, you know, unified artist group. They were a kind of disparate group of people who thought of themselves as challenging the, the system, but they were all really quite different stylistically. So the exhibition, you know, does contain works that are kind of of the classic 1870s Impressionist period, which are really those scenes of nature with a very licensed, spontaneous palette, the sun-drenched nature of the countryside of France really represented well. But you also have artists like Edgar Degas, who was an intrinsic member of all of the exhibitions that later became known as the Impressionist exhibitions, whose palette is much more, uh, it has colour, but there's a sort of sombreness to it, a certain flatness to the paintwork. So different approaches uh, in, in each canvas. Um, some of his work also shows him almost sketching with paint and then giving up before he even covers the extent of the canvas. So it's a really experimental time um, for actual apply, actually applying paint to, to canvas. So I think for people who are interested in how artists actually work and how they build up images, how they form compositions, the Impressionists are a great place to start, really, because they, they, you can really see them almost like their thoughts on the canvas because it is very much about being in the moment of the painting and the moment of the experience of nature translated into paint. Early uh, in art history, 
uh, and sadly uh, until much more recently, uh, the dominant narrative was about the male genius, the male artist, uh, and, mm. and putting uh, m uh, male painters on a pedestal. How will mm. this exhibition, uh, French Impressionism, at the NGV from the 4th of June to the 3rd of October, how will it help uh, tilt the balance, kind of rewrite the history books, uh, tell us about the, the representation of female artists in the exhibition. Yes, certainly. Well, um, I would say that, you know, it's an important question, Richard, and one that, you know, when you are dealing with the French Impressionists, you are up against the fact that many of the museums, in a sense, replicate that idea that you just referred to, that the, the male artist is the, you know, the, the place of genius and that these are the, the you know, historically people have, have discounted the work of many women artists. I mean, the Impressionist period is interesting because there are, in fact, many women artists who are becoming quite um, professional at that moment, becoming well-respected and regarded, and the exhibition does feature two fantastic women artists, Bertha Morisot, a French artist, and Mary Cassatt, who's an American painter, born in Philadelphia but spent most of her adult life in France and became very much one of the French Impressionists. She exhibited at several of the French Impressionist exhibitions. She was critically acclaimed, um, became quite successful at, at, you know, selling work, was also instrumental and, you know, and this is a, a contribution she's made to the progression of art and art museums in America. She also was very good at connecting her friends in the French movement to collectors back in America who at the time in the early late 19th and early 20th centuries were the most you know cashed up collectors who were really willing to buy impressionist paintings and very and obsessed with French painting in general so we we have two paintings in the show by these women artists which is you know it is not enough unfortunately but the fact of the matter is that the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston only has one painting by Bert Morisot in its collection and that is in our exhibition it does have several more by Mary Cassatt, um, and we are having one of her paintings in the exhibition because really the majority of the works are by French artists, and the sad fact is that they weren't collecting as widely as they could have at the time, and, you know, it's something that museums, I think, now are much more aware of, and, um, you know, the works of, you know, Morisot and uh, uh, Eva Gonzalez, for example, another Impressionist painter, are very highly sought after, and Museums are trying to redress that balance, but it's not an easy thing to do. Do many of the paintings by the, the female uh, artists of the Impressionist period, uh, do their paintings exist? Were they collected or have many of them just been literally forgotten? Well, no, they were certainly collected by... Um, it's interesting. I think American museums, some of them did collect the women artists much more. I think they were more progressive socially at that time, perhaps in the early 20th century, than in the French context. But in legacies, in bequests, um, works have entered collections so sort of Morisot for example is fairly well represented in maybe the National Gallery in DC but also in the Musée d'Orsay but you know certainly many artists would have gone through art training and their works would have been um, sadly I guess you know ended up not being part of the commercial world not entering into the same degree of um, museum collecting and therefore has often been forgotten, which is why so many great you know, developments with art history in the last 40 years, I'd say, has been sort of uncovering some of those women and their work. And actually at the same, at the time of, um, well, while French Impressionism is on at NGV 
international. There is a great exhibition that's going to be opening in April at NGV Australia, looking at Australian Impressionism as a lovely complementary show. But one of the really distinctive aspects of that exhibition is the number of women artists who are practicing, you know, in, in that mode of Impressionism, often with a little bit of a delay in terms of the influence of artists from Europe. But there is certainly more prevalence of Australian, of, of women artists in that exhibition. And I mean, maybe that's just to do with being a younger country, having less of the, you know, restrictions in the earlier days for women and what they could do. But um, I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. It would be fascinating to see perhaps another major Impressionist exhibition at the NGV, maybe in another 10 years' time, which could... Uh, because borrowing, uh, arranging the loan of artworks from other museums and galleries is a long and fraught process. But it would be wonderful to see works from uh, the Musée d'Orsay and other collections that could present the, a body of work by female Impressionists. Nonetheless, the body of work being... I agree. Yeah. Uh, presented in yeah, all good the uh, body of work being presented in French impressionism at NGV mm. International running from the mm. 4th of June to the 3rd of October uh, the fact that I understand there will be pretty much uh, an entire selection of works 16 canvases by Claude Monet for example it is an opportunity to see a significant body of works by artists who are still significant in the canon that's right I mean you know um, Monet is uh, I mean he, he's an eternal crowd pleaser for a reason his paintings are just you know, extremely beautiful um, and one thing about Boston they were able to collect a certain artists in depth so yes there are in the in the show as a whole 19 works by Monet which very much show his progression from from a young artist influenced by artists like Eugène Boudin, who's not as well known here, but is an artist who we're able to represent in depth in the exhibition because he was very popular amongst certain early Boston collectors and he's a, a sort of painter of seascapes and very important in influencing Monet's approach to painting outdoors, um, all the way through to a great sequence of paintings from his last years uh, of his garden at Giovanni, uh, really some spectacular scenes that people will be, I think, delighted to just be able to experience in person. The exhibition French Impressionism, uh, which is presented by the NGV uh, in partnership with Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, running from the 4th of June until the 3rd of October at NGV International in St Kilda Road. Uh, there will be admission fees. You can jump online uh, to the NGV website for more information, ngv.vic.gov.au. Uh, and while you're on the website, yes, do check out the details for She Oak and Sunlight, which is a lovely title, Australian Impressionism, the complimentary exhibition running from the 2nd of April until the 22nd of August at the Ian Potter Centre, NGV Australia, and many other exhibitions that uh, have been announced this week running throughout the rest of the year. I've been chatting with Dr Miranda Wallace, Senior Curator at the NGV. Miranda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 